Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I am joining you from Gadigal land uh, and I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation who are the traditional custodians of this land and hold the stories and customs associated with this place, uh, Jubagali. And I'd also like to say that people are joining us from all over the country. So even in this session, we have, uh, we're representing from the Garingai lands, the Wurundjeri lands and the Gadigal lands as well. Um, And you're joining from all around the country. So all the lands that we are joining have in common that the land never ceded and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, today we're here to talk about something that is elusive as it is ubiquitous, the issue of morality, and specifically the issue of morality in politics, which the more cynical amongst us might dismiss as being completely oxymoronic. It's hard to imagine a cohort more harshly judged on moral grounds than politicians, except for perhaps journalists, which makes me feel like I'm being joined today by exactly the right people to discuss this complex topic. Dr. Julia Baird is one of our best-known journalists. Uh, She hosts The Drum on the ABC and writes columns for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and The New York Times. Her book, Phosphorescence, has been an absolute runaway smash hit bestseller for the last 18 months or more. And earlier this year was the recipient of the incredibly prestigious Australian Book Society uh, Book Industry Award for Book of the Year. Jacqueline Maley, is a senior journalist and columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And earlier this year, she also put out a book, her first novel called The Truth About Her. And if you haven't read it, I urge you to get your hands on that. Both books are fantastic and both really good pandemic reads, I will say. Osman Faruqi, I don't think has written a book yet, but it can't be far off. I imagine that it's any moment now that is coming. Uh, Oz is head of audio at Schwartz Media. Uh, He edits the 7am podcast and hosts the Schwartz Media Culture Podcast, and he's walked, worked across all platforms of media, print, broadcast, and online. It is such a pleasure to have you all gathered here virtually today to talk about morality. So when I programmed this session months ago, I wanted to have something in this festival that acknowledged the fact that it was strongly rumoured at that time that Scott Morrison was going to be calling an election at the end of this year. Of course, that hasn't worked out so well. But I wanted to program something that allowed for discussion about politics and politics in a sort of broadly electoral context in Australia, but that would be a perennial topic as well. And when I really got thinking about it, I couldn't think of a sort of more perennial topic in recent time than this issue of morality when it comes to political discussion, because it seems to me that the last 20 years have seen a real increased focus on the idea of morals and morality in Australian political discourse broadly. I think things really ramped up in this area with Tampa 20 years ago and the genesis of our ongoing refugee policy and the way that that's discussed discussed, um, and has twisted and turned their way through all sorts of issues, Indigenous rights, uh, marriage equality, climate change, health and education policy, welfare reform, race and gender politics, and now even responses to the pandemic are couched increasingly in moral terms. And I think it's worthwhile at the outset to um, to sort of nod to what I mean by morality in this context, because it's a slightly tricky word. It's quite an old fashioned word, as, as has been pointed out, but also I think gets deployed in Australian political discourse and journalistic media discourse in quite simplistic terms. So I think often when you're talking about the moral centre or the moral high ground or morality generally in Australian politics, often what you're talking about are sort of broad ideas of good and bad and sort of basic decency, you know, what people think is right and wrong. So that's the sort of broad framework that I think we're going to take into this conversation today, unless, of course, any of the panellists want to disagree with me, in which case you're completely welcome. And I think it might actually be an interesting starting point for this um, to think about whether you actually to, to, to ask you all whether you actually agree with my starting premise for this discussion. Do you think that we have um, that that the ideas of morality in politics have become more central this century? What do you think, Oz? 
Good question to kick things off. And thanks very much for going mm-hmm. to me first. Why not? Um, <laughs> I think there's probably, I think there's two sides to the question. I think there's the idea of morality in terms of the actions and behaviors of politicians. And, you know, I uh, hesitate to say that they've never been moral, but I don't think there's necessarily been a marked change in the the way that politicians act in their own I'm not even talking about personal lives, but the way that they enact politics, right? I think we all, uh, you know, grown up enough to accept that politicians have and will continue to sometimes do underhanded or nasty things. They say that it's often for the greater good, and I think it's an open question as to whether or not it is. I think the other side of it is the way that politicians couch and frame policy arguments. So rather than the behind the scenes stuff, how does a politician make a case for a certain policy position, whether it is, as you said, Edwin, or on refugee policy or on climate policy or on the way that we respond to the pandemic? And I do think that we have seen that kind of become more dominant in the way that we discuss ideas. I think it certainly has been in the last couple of decades, but I think it's probably been a little bit longer than that. And I think it's because politics has become less about a contest of genuine ideas ideas, a contest of different political parties and organizations representing different segments of the community and representing very different visions for what the world should look like and smarter people than me. It's almost kind of cliche to say this, but I still think it's important that the the, the kind of rampant way that neoliberalism has dominated economic discourse in most of the Western world means that parties like Labour and Liberal that traditionally had very different views in the economy now have very similar views. And so that means, well, what do you fight about? How do you fight about things? You don't fight on those hard-nosed terms. You fight on your idea of what the right thing is to do versus the other side having the wrong thing to do. And it's almost like uh, trying to fill that deficit of genuine ideas with a battle over who's right or wrong. And I think that's a really interesting question. What I'm really looking forward to talking about is, what if we don't agree on what right and wrong is? How does that work as a framework for how our politics operates? Interesting things there, Oz, and I think that you're absolutely right. I think that um, that there has been a kind of, you know, uh, a lessening of the very clear tribal lines in our two major parties. Um, and, you know, perhaps one of the sort of big, the, the big sort of moments that that happened might lend credence to my to my sort of time frame here, because probably it was the Paul Keating governments through the through the 80s and into the 90s that might have really um, kind of brought about that sort of initial beginning of the collapse of that very rigid um, understanding of what Labor stood for and what, you know, the mm. Liberal Coalition, you know, Liberal National Coalition stood for. But Julia, you have a background in history. Um, what do you think? Has it always been thus? Or do you think that there has been, um, you know, that it has been more dominant in the last little while? Um, yeah, I think it, it's it's always been a sense of politics being not defined by morals. There's always a moral debate around politics. I mean, I studied particularly the, you know, the 1900s. That entire century, you know, um, even if we look post-Enlightenment, it's about we're bringing our wisdom, our civilization, um, to the entire globe. Like the whole imperial, imperial project, the expansion of empire, was meant to be a moral enterprise, obviously something which we um, would dispute quite fiercely today when we look at what um, at the consequences and the behaviours around that. So, and in fact, it was even more blatantly done so, but then it was, an, it was a national story or, a, you know, an empire story. I think what you've defined, what you're talking about in the last 20 years, is a time when things that we used to agree on have become, have become much more partisan. Um, for example, you know, um, human, human rights. After the, you know, after the Second World War, Eleanor Roosevelt wouldn't have considered herself a, you know, raging, bleeding heart, lefty or whatever, social justice warrior or whatever the terminology that's used to slur people who talk about basic human rights in a lot of, situ- in a lot of situations. So, um, but now it's, it, is, it, 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 it is considered that. Even Senator, even Brandis has, has spoke about, gave a speech once when he said, we have vacated that ground. Why has the right 
given up on this whole area which is called human rights. There's a certain language that you cannot use. And actually, I think it's the same with women. Even to use the word women, attach women as a prefix or a suffix or wherever, and it's branded as something of the left. And I did a study of um, with a colleague, Sam Bold, about why it was that in the last 10 to 15 years, conservative parties around the world were flatlining when it came to female representation, as in with the Republicans in the US, or just going at a much, much slower rate than those parties on the left. And one really dominant view from female politicians and theorists around the world is that to talk about women at all is considered to be a preoccupation of the left. So when things like that, same thing with climate change. I mean, the fact that we have a basic scientific, you know, debate um, that's been turned into a culture war um, makes it something moral when actually it's, it's, an, it's an enormous problem that needs to be urgently fixed and that, which we need to listen to scientists on. So do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think when, when we've had, like, areas like that, um, basically abandoned in terms of ways we can even speak about it by major parties, it makes it might make it seem like we're talking more about, about moral issues. And then, of course, on top of that, I'd add to um, Osmond's um, two points would be the third, which is who's making those decisions? And I think that's the debate we're having now. Can you have a moral decision? Can a group of white men make a moral decision about the, the way the rest of the country should operate when it comes to childcare or climate change or anything, if other voices aren't included and not heard, is that fundamentally an immoral position? So I think that's a that's another point I'd add to it. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I, 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 I'm looking forward to talking about all of these things uh, over the course of of the next, you know, 50 minutes or so. But, 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 Jackie, what do you think about about the sort of provocation? Are you feeling like, um, like it's it's a it's a sort of that 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 everything is being turned into a moral argument now. That that in order to be able to get any sort of political cut through, politicians need to need to find a moral framework, or 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 is that being overstated? I think. I mean, you know, I think the idea of morality um, conjures is a very old-fashioned idea, and it's almost a sort of Victorian idea, and it's something that we would have only really talked about in the in the sense, in a very much a biblical sense and in terms of a set of religious values that a lot of people just don't adhere to anymore. So in that sense, it's a really old fashioned idea. So I think that people don't talk about it like overtly anymore. Politicians don't because it's out of fashion and it probably mm. wouldn't resonate with people because no one wants to feel that they're being lectured to or they're being told how to live. But um, I think what you've seen in the last 20 years is that the idea of morality has gone underground a little bit and people maybe with the notable exception of Kevin Rudd, who talks about the greatest moral challenge of our time, which I would argue climate change is, you know, perhaps it is a moral challenge, but it's many things above that um, that supersede whatever morality might be involved. Um, but yeah, with the exception of Kevin Rudd, politicians don't really talk, don't use the M word. They talk about values. They might talk about decency. They might talk about things being Australian or un-Australian. Um, you know, you yeah. might have, um, you know, politicians talking about cracking down on welfare and talking about welfare recipients in a way that is like a dog whistle to sort of um, to moral values, and, you know, sort of trying to imply that welfare recipients are lazy or that they're loose or that they somehow don't care about their children as much of the rest as much as the rest of the population. Or we talk about it in terms, you know, um, the New South Wales abortion decriminalisation debate. Nobody uh, overtly said the word, you know, it's immoral to have an abortion. However, you had, you know, people like Barnaby Joyce and, and um, those very much on the sort of, you know, the Catholic right, um, Tony Abbott, talking, basically telling women that it was wrong um, to have an abortion and that this was something that was offending against the highest moral value, which is to value human life. So in there that was also sense, a big flank of the Catholic ALP that was there as well. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, and I think on the other side, we talk, we, you know, the debate around or the sort of controversy around Barnaby Joyce's um, affair with his staffer and, you know, that whole sex ban thing, which is, you know, brought to mind Barnaby Joyce's sex life in a way that none of us will ever be able to un, <laughs> un remember. Um, but 
that was kind of a moral debate because we were saying, hang on, like this guy is, you know, a family values guy. He's sort of, you know, he's a Catholic, he's a committed family man. And isn't doesn't that make him a hypocrite? And can't we report on him journalistically for being a hypocrite by the moral standard that he has set for himself? So it definitely creeps in. I just don't think it's like something that is really overt, but we operate in a moral sphere where human beings and politicians um, absolutely operate in that sphere and we judge them on, on those values. I think it's really interesting a point that you made about, um, you know, politicians might not use words like um, morality because it does um, it does sort of have these connotations. And also, you know, I mean, like it, it, it arguably, you know, Kevin Rudd declaring climate change the, the, the greatest moral challenge of our time and then vacating the space could have, you know, really had something, you know, like, like I think you can draw a direct line between that statement and and his ultimate loss of, of, of power in many ways. Certainly a lot of respect was lost for him when, when he set himself up in order to be framed as a moral hypocrite, which feels so much bigger than, than you know, uh, other things. Someone who, but this someone idea... who failed to get through a carbon price. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that, that you said, which I think is interesting, is this sort of framing of Australian versus un-Australian, because it speaks to a sort of myth-making that's bound up in an idea of values and and you know what we value and and there's this kind of tendency I think to sort of homogenise Australianness in a way that is sort of represented in our parliament and and is is probably predominantly you know a, a middle-aged white guy you know it's Father's Day today it's like you know we've 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 got the dad in chief as our as our PM um, Oz what do you think about that kind of myth making and 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 do you think that there's a sort of dimension of that that plays into this conversation? I think there is. I think, I mean, I think Jackie is, is right. I think I think of moral arguments when, when she mentioned, when Jackie mentioned uh, values as well. I think to me, they're in a similar kind of bucket because you're making an appeal to something that's not that tangible rather than uh, something that is hard-headed and, and irrational, you know? So you can argue policy on the basis of it makes economic sense to do this because it saves us money and that's money we can spend on X, Y, and Z, or we should do this thing because it's the right thing to do and it fits in with our sense of what this country is about. And um, I will answer your question in a second, but I think a really good practical example of that, that I also am going to steal from what Jackie just said when she was talking about welfare uh, policy. I think it's really interesting that, you know, quote unquote welfare fraud is not really a significant budget issue in this country. Um, and that's kind of why you don't see governments say, in order to save this many millions of dollars, we will enact these kinds of policies to crack down on it. Instead, the way that they frame the stories and the way a lot of, lot of the media frames the stories is it becomes about morals and values, right? These people are ripping off the system. They're doing something bad. They're un-Australian. They're acting against this sense of like what we're all about. And why do politicians like to do that? I think because creating a shared sense of what this country is about and a shared sense of uh, who they are and what they represent is a shortcut to getting support. And it, if you're a politician, you have quite a lot of power to define what Australia is. And most of the time, that definition is not reflected in the reality. Like most of what our politicians pretend Australia is, is like an 80s version of neighbours. Not even, not that neighbours today is like mm -hmm. super representative, but it was even less representative mm -hmm. then. And by doing that, they then say, okay, this is what Australia is. These are the values and morals that we subscribe to. I represent those, vote for me. But it also more insidiously lets them define an other, right? So if you don't belong in this myth that I've created, you're part of this other group and I will demonize you because you're doing the wrong thing. That's people who are queue jumpers, people who are welfare bludgers. So I think even though that doesn't seem like a moral thing, I think it ultimately does become one of, of morality. And in terms of that question of myth-making and, and sort of building building a story, is, is what you're saying that, 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 that the story is designed to exclude as well as include and, and that's part of its sort of architecture? Yeah, because I think the thing with morals and this is if, if you want to define them as fundamentally as the right thing versus the wrong thing, they only work in conjunction with each other. They, they, there's two sides to it. And I think politicians around the world, but particularly in Australia, you're talking about things like Tampa, Edwin at the start of this conversation, are very good at knowing who to demonise and who to attack to make the other side feel good. 
And so that fits perfectly into this binary of there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. Mm. Mm. And that, by the Julia, way, is a perennial, yeah, go on. No, go ahead. No, you, no, please. Oh, no, I was just going to say it was a perennial in terms of like the, the idea of um, the discussion about people needing to, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Like all of that stuff is so deep in, in the Victorian era. Poverty mm. was, we came to people who deserved it and we're still seeing it. It's, it's not even what's Australian or what's not. It's, it's something, it's, you know, it's, it's centuries old. But, um, and it is about exclusion. It is not about defining us by um, decency and by the things that we want to be and the things that we want to see in public life, which we actually just don't see much of, to be honest. We just don't see it. Moments of decency that we would generally thrill to. Um, mm. But anyway, so, but, 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 but like Jackie, I think I resolve from a lot of the idea of morality because it's often about, even that term is often about blokes telling people what they can or cannot do with their bodies. And it's really about state control through religious ideas. So, um, and, and yeah, it, ha it hasn't necessarily worked out very well for, um, for women, that whole morality <laughs> debate. But I'm sorry, you were going to ask. No, no, no. I mean, you, you you took the conversation actually in the direction I was going to, which was which was to sort of bring it around. If we're talking about sort of groups that are excluded, obviously women are a group that that has been excluded in the last twelve months. We've seen we've seen a big sort of shift in in that, and a, this this kind of you know like like furious awakening of 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 the sort of understanding of the depth of the exclusion there. And I think it's been interesting. Um, the way again that's been couched in kind of ways of decency because it plays into all sorts of different you know i mean all sorts of different sort of misogynistic tropes as well you know the idea of the decent woman you know mm. isn't somebody who's drunk you know isn't isn't somebody who um who uh is unruly or speaks out or, or whatever Jackie, how, how do you think sort of these notions of decency have informed the sort of very, you know, important and, and, and often, you know, like furious debates that we've had that were sort of sparked off by, by the Brittany Higgins affair, by Grace Thames, Australia of the Year nomination, all of those things that sort of really brought these things into focus? Yeah, I think um, like probably every single debate or furor that's happened around the sexuality of women, violence against women, sexual violence against women, it's always been framed in terms of the victim, her morality, her decency, what she did to deserve it. Like the moral, the moral judgments have been heavy on the victim and we haven't really even had a look at the perpetrators, let alone the systems and the men around the perpetrators who are sort of um, uh, supporting them. I, I, you know, you talk about morality in terms of like the, that, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, the woman problem, the woman, you know, the, the woman problem that Parliament House has. And I just think of Scott Morrison, you know, alluding or talking about, you know, that he discussed it with, with Jen after the Brittany Higgins um, revelation or allegation and that. You and know, Jen is the moral compass of Australia. She's the, mo she's the moral compass. She's, you know, to use a Victorian term, Jules, she's the angel in the home who, you know, guides the man towards um, decency and um, the correct moral way um, in almost a sort of Christian sense. And also he invoked his daughters and he said, you know, Jen said, what, what, if, it ha what, what if it was to happen to your daughter? I thought, what if it was your daughter? And to me, that was very much a moral argument that he was making because he was portraying... Um, his his notion of a of a rape victim or a, an alleged rape victim was someone who needed the protection of men, who was almost a ward of men, and who was young and innocent and defenceless. And as we know, um, most rape victims don't fit into that category. Most women don't fit into that category. Um, so it was just really interesting to me the way that he did that. And I think. To give Scott Morrison his credit, I think for, you know, I think he was reaching for the right answer and he was trying to respond to that issue on a personal level rather than a political level. And he did it in a ham-fisted way that ended up offending a lot of women. Um, but yeah, he was he was framing the issue in, in moral terms and very much looking at the victim in moral terms. 
And now I think what, what a lot of women are really angry about and, and they're trying to flip, like it really is a revolution in that sense, is like let's forget about the morality and the decency and, the, you know, mm-hmm. um, whatever kind of moral credit you want to lay at the victim's feet. Let's look at the, the, the perpetrators and let's look That's at fine. the, you know, the, the patriarchal systems and let's look at how moral and decent they are and by whose standards. Um, so that's one moral debate that I would really welcome in this country at a political <laughs> level, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it was so obvious straight away that we were almost, there were a lot of politicians talking in really soft voices about Britney yeah. and that it was really sad and, you know, let's just give everything space, as opposed to criminality and behave, criminal behaviour occurring in Parliament House that, that does not, that seems to have gone, you know, without note, that a whole bunch of people yeah. know, knew about. That I was just wanting someone to say, mate, by the way, if you think it's even correct to do X, Y or Z to a woman, you know, let alone the criminal act, you're not wanted here. That line that Morrison yeah. took, that, that you know, when he was army chief was, was brilliant because it was all about yeah. get out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was, a, yeah. there, there was, you know, there, there, I guess there's, that t- does actually take it away from what's decent and what's good to what a safe workplace is um, and, you know, and, and what it is to sexually assault someone. And then we, and obviously we need to look at the systems in which such a small, small fraction of reported rapes ever result in convictions, and an even smaller percent are even reported. I mean, we've had this discussion, but it's that that needs needs to budge. And you know, every time, I don't know. I, I I think there is a really important discussion to be had about morality generally, about um, you know, about politicians lying, about about corruption, about um, you know, just really the obvious thing. We want politicians to say, when I'm elected. I will do X. And then when you're elected, just do it. And it's amazing how often that actual scheme is, is kind of complete, is completely missing. But it's actually about efficiency and hitting a few of the, of, of the KPIs. On the drum, mm. night after night after night, we talk to experts who have told the government what to do, who've sat and given recommendations to reviews, whether it's sexual assault, you know, and the court system, whether it's um, deaths in custody, um, it, whether it's climate change or bushfires, or it, it's that sense of um, why are we sitting on so many reports? And, and to me, that's more important when it comes down to it. We want we want a government that can just get stuff done, like climate change. Don't you reckon? Yeah, you know, you raise yeah. you raise such a such an important point there, and 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 I think that. Um, I think that the issue of lying and truth-telling in politics is really at, at the core of this as well. Like, I, I think that um, that the sort of responsibility of our elected representatives to accurately and truthfully represent to us what their intentions are, what their reasoning is, you know, why they're making decisions that they're making. I mean, it's really coming out in the pandemic and the way that information around the pandemic is being handled by our governments um, and what sort of responsibility they, they have. But, but Oz, what do you think the role of truth is in politics at the moment? Do you, do you, and, and, and how is it that you think that lying has become sort of you know, so easy corruption has become so easy that, that you know, Gladys Berejiklian can say, well, everyone pork barrels, so it's it's sort of yeah. fine that, mm. that I can. And everybody yeah. goes, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> what has happened with that? Yeah, look, again, and I know a lot of what we're saying is that none of this stuff is that new, but it's, it's very interesting because when I said at the start of this that there's moral, I guess I think about morals in terms of behaviour and process and then morals in terms of, policy positions and how they're argued. Mm. You know, Machiavelli is famous for basically writing then defending the arguments that politicians should lie and cheat and be corrupt if if that serves their political end goal, right? So this idea of politics uh, being a moral free zone or at least a space in which morals can be suspended is also not really new. And I guess the question is more like, why does it feel worse than it ever has before? Uh, and I think maybe that's because we're not quite sure what purpose their lies are serving. And I think the Gladys 
thing is such an interesting example, Gladys Brodrickland example you just gave. My personal view, I'm, you know, I actually would defer to both Jackie and Julia on this being more across New South Wales politics than I am. I think partly then people were so happy that New South Wales was not going through the pandemic in the way that not just the rest of the world was, but like Victoria was, right? So the idea that Gladys Berejiklian, who at that stage had kept New South Wales open and safe, if she crossed some lines allegedly, if maybe her operation as Premier wasn't as morally sincere as otherwise would have been, I don't really care. I'm willing to accept that from politicians. I'm not expecting them to be a holy saint. But I think Mm. when you start to see their decisions that are morally dubious lead to something worse off, then you start to question why they did do that in the first place. I hope that makes sense. It's kind of like we're willing to excuse morally dubious behaviour if we think it's in our own interests as a a community. It's it's kind of yeah. like a hierarchy of needs thing, I reckon, with the with the pandemic, because we're like, okay, we're all of our attention. Everybody's just trying to get by. Everybody's focused on their own survival, and we got we just need you to do the one job right now, which is get us out of this mess or lead us out of this mess in some coherent way, and we'll let the rest of that stuff slide. Like I think, you know, I often think of how many politicians and ministers and public servants even. Um, and other and and corrupt officials are sitting like rubbing their hands with glee that all of this stuff that they're doing mm-hmm. is not being exposed because everybody's intention uh, everybody's attention most notably the media's is all fixated on case numbers and you know I'm not saying that that stuff's not important but do we really need 50 journalists at every you know Dan Andrews or Gladys Berejiklian conference when you know there's probably all sorts of other stuff they're getting away with um, yeah. while while everybody's uh, looking you know looking over there. Totally. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Oz. When you look at the, um, I just pulled up the Australian Talks survey stuff before, which really showed that overwhelmingly Australians think that politicians lie. Now this isn't supposed to be, this isn't meant to be a shock, right? But like. think most politicians will lie if they feel the truth will hurt them politically. And they think they should, 98%, if they accept a bribe, mislead parliament, lie to the Australian public, a really high percentage, they were all over 90%, thought that they should resign if they were found to have engaged in that behaviour, claim the taxpayer money they they weren't entitled to, engage in port barrelling. There's simultaneously a really strong belief that politicians do that. It's kind of this weird thing. We don't want it. We don't want them there. It's not an apathy thing. It's not that we don't care. It's you're right. It's a question. I mean, especially when it came to Gladys and Berejiklian and the and the handling of the pandemic. I do think that came into it. Um, But I do think there's a lot of disgust and and contempt, and a lot of people would like to see a federal ICAC. Having examined, like having studied the um, media treatment of. female politicians for like a long, for a long time. I think Gladys is like the, uh, Berejiklian is the only chat one I've seen and it's actually been to her benefit that she was a single female politician that people found relatable. It was all mm. cast as this, she date, she's dated this loser, who hasn't been there, everyone understands. Poor, I, mean, I was, It was astonishing actually how successful that was, because I haven't seen it before. We've seen other people like Sarah Hansen-Young who said that the moment she got divorced, people started treating her differently and that whole slut-shaming thing. Um, Emma Hassan will speak to being a single woman in parliament as well as will Kate Ellis. So I just, yeah, I think that was kind of a fascinating well, twist as well, I mean, but it was very much pandemic-related, yeah. The, on, that, on that point, um, Julie Gillard had an almost exactly parallel experience, which was a past, a previous right. boyfriend, like a 20 years old boyfriend, um, who yep. had allegedly, possibly, but on the facts actually not, led her into some sort of um, semi, you know, corruption adjacent behaviour in the union slush fund stuff. And, you know, the, her not pay, paying for her household renovations in cash. But that was framed in such a different way. Nobody said, oh, yep. you know, who hasn't had it? crappy boyfriend in their 20s, you know, maybe he was a bit dodgy. It was nothing to do with her. You know, she's a decent person. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it was always interesting to me that, yeah, Gladys was allowed to have a dodgy boyfriend, but Julia Gard absolutely was not allowed <laughs> to have had a dodgy boyfriend 20 years ago. I don't, I mean, there's very oh. complex reasons for that. But I, I suspect one of the... Yeah, go ahead. Go on, Julia. 
No, I don't, no, I just want to make the point that then there's another way in which morality has been a real problem for female politicians. So if you if you look at all of the extensions of like the suffrage debate, for example, every time it was widened, every time there's an attempt to make something more democratic, we'll make a better, they'll make better decisions. There'll be a more, let's use the term moral or decent law. Same thing is assumed when we bring women into parliament. They'll clean it up, you know, they'll be more honest, they'll be like almost saintly creatures in some, in some cases. And that has been a disaster for them because it, it, it has meant, when you see this particularly through the, the, the hearts from the, like the 70s to today, um, that when they made mistakes or when they were, I don't know, jockeying for position or counting numbers or doing politics because that's what politics is, that's seen as something um, evil and craven and, um, you know, um, repellent. Unnatural. And it's made their position, it's made their position much more precarious. And we saw it with, with even if you compare the, the media around Julie Gillard and Malcolm Turnbull, Malcolm was, Turnbull was grasping the reins when, you know, steadying the ship and she was covered in blood. Um, she was so Lady, Lady I, Macbeth. Yeah, that's right. And every time they suggested Julie Bishop could in fact take over um, from Malcolm Turnbull, she too, the cartoons immediately appeared of her as Lady Macbeth, that old trope. So, um, it, it, and in a way, I remember when we were talking about the Brittany Higgins stuff and Catherine Griner came on the drum and she's like, they immediately talk about quotas. Why is it that we need to come in and clean up this mess? Like, why is it that the women are being ushered in now with their mops? Can't we just, can't they actually just sort that environment out themselves? So anyway, I think that, I think that's an interesting thing because that, that has been a burden. But at the same time, you do hope that a more representative more diverse, um, you know, uh, group of people in our parliaments would actually break up clubbish and, um, you know, corrupt ways of doing things. Yeah, and that and that obviously encompasses race as well as gender because, you know, we still have an overwhelmingly white parliament and, of course, you know, people of colour in parliament, the vanishingly tiny number of them that there are, are also held to unreasonably high standards of moral behaviour because they need to uphold, um, right. you know, do, do, do more work in that sort of area. Um, I'd like to consider, you know, it's been sort of stalking this conversation all the way through, um, but, but, but the idea of religion and, and, and the idea of organised religion um, in politics, because, you know, three of our five previous prime ministers have been, um, you know, very overtly and occasionally performatively men of faith um, and, and, you know, different faiths, faiths and deployed in different ways. But, you know, remember Rudd used to love his Sunday morning church doorstops where, where he'd invite the media to, to, to the church in Canberra and he'd, he'd sort of, you know, pontificate on the steps with the church framed in the background. And, you know, Abbott proudly declared that his daughter called him a churchy loser. Um, like, you know, that was something that he put into public discourse. That wasn't something that was that was thrust on him. And, you know, Morrison um, kind of was, was very comfortable making the remarks that he made to the Australian Christian Churches Conference um, in which he was talking about the evil one and talking about laying on of hands and, 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 and that kind of thing. I mean, all three prime ministers sort of performed a religion as a sort of shorthand for morality, but but at the same time, that religion was weaponized against them by their political foes as well. Um, how do you think that religion plays out in Australian politics, and 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 the religion of of leaders gets deployed in this way? And I'd like to hear you all sort of think about this because I know that you've all got different different things to say. I think the word "deploy" is really important there. Like, I don't. I think this is maybe an unpopular opinion. I don't think Morrison is as, you know, I think there's a view that Morrison is deeply religious. His particular, uh, the kind of Christianity that he subscribes to is is a rare one in Australia, which has made it such an interesting talking point. I think it's certainly worth interrogating and exploring. But I don't believe that he sort of wakes up and is like, okay, what is my position on this issue? Uh, and I'm going to consult my pastor in the Bible to come to that. I think he, like a lot before him, have has is very good at knowing when to use the language and the terminology of religion. And to me, it's the same thing about morals. It's like sometimes when you're trying to put forward a position or you're trying to get support, it's easier to to make an appeal to something that you think is the collective sense of 
uh, of, of beliefs and values. We believe in God. We're a God-fearing nation. We're predominantly Christian. That's not really true, but, you know, in terms of plurality in the census uh, and speaking at events like the ACL, he's being tactical and political in that regard. I think maybe Tony Abbott was someone probably to his political detriment that probably did think about his religion a lot when he was forming his views. I think Morrison is mm -hmm. much more cynical and strategic uh, than that. But I think what this question of Christianity and, and religion and morals highlights to me is why they get lumped together is because religion is kind of the only institution left that has clear moral frameworks, and they tend to be associated with the conservative side of politics. So when you think about the uh, hostility to progressive reforms around abortion or euthanasia, that resistance tends to come from the moral positioning of religion. But it doesn't need to be like that. And I think that maybe there's part of the issue that we have in this discussion is that the progressive side of politics lacks a collective moral framework. And some of that could come from religion, but sometimes it doesn't need to. I mean, you could just set guidelines, or guidelines is the wrong word, but the idea of uh, looking after people who are less fortunate, uh, using your positions of power to elevate those who are marginalized. Ideas of fairness and justice are moral, and they give you a sense of what the right thing might be to do in a certain situation. But it doesn't feel like at the moment, at least in Australia, there is a collective sense of morals on the progressive side of politics, which means that in the absence of that, the moral discussion gets filled with uh, religiosity or ideas of religion. And in Australia, that means particularly Christianity. Julia, what do you think about that? Because that sort of harks back to the point that you were making before about the fact that, you know, the right allowed allowed the left to take over this sort of moral position, but the right has often reached for religion and organised religion as a sort of, you know, like, like, like kind of comeback to that. What do you, um, what do you think? Yeah, that's true. And I think the left can sometimes be very cynical of religion. I mean, there are people on both sides. There's Penny Wong um, in the ALP. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, it, it, it spans politics. I think Oz is right in that in what you say, the difference between um, Scott Morrison and Tony Abbott was. Greg Sheridan in his book, he actually got quite an extensive interview with Scott Morrison about his faith. And he says, it's got nothing, like, yes, it drives me, but it's got nothing to do with my policies, right? So he says, it's like people saying, you support the sharks, so how does that affect the budget? Which I kind of think is interesting, whereas, whereas um, Tony Abbott, had a very clear sense of what he thought the world should look like and a family should look like and also people's personal lives. And um, that was kind of obvious where that was coming from. Um, so, yeah, I think Australians are very cynical about, um, about expressions of religion and that's because it is largely emerges, as Jack was saying earlier, when it comes to questions around um, abortion and um, same-sex marriage, and uh, but they're, but they're, at the same time, there are a lot of people who are working in the in the space of detention um, and also a lot of voluntary work across religions. I kind of love that. Every time that there's there's that there's a natural disaster, you'll see the truck full of Sikhs um, going to hand out food, and there were those those truckfuls of you know the who are those Muslim guys? I've forgotten actually what. what it's anyway, I'll think, I'll think of it in a moment, um, who were doing a lot, a lot of that kind of work. There's a lot of kind of nuns who work in the, quite, quite radical nuns who work in the space around trying to get um, people out of detention centres. So um, we talk about faith. When it's talked about in politics, it's very reductive and it's very simplistic and I think it's alienating for a lot of people and they're cynical about it because, um, you know, if we look at, for if, if you were to say, I'm a Christian, and I'm a politician, um, but they're separate. That's a really interesting stance mm. to take. Mm. If you were to be analytical about it, you would say, all right, let's look at the Bible as a document. Number one priority, poverty. It's mentioned thousands of times in there. Protect the widow, the orphan, the refugee. That would be your priority. There's maybe like three references to sexuality. So the fact of proportion, you would think, would make anyone going into politics say, well, the measure of my success, by the end of it, I want people out of poverty. That's it. So we haven't 
heard that things framed in that way. And I think because of that, um, a lot of people get 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 jaded and frustrated, particularly with overt expressions of religion. Um, yeah. What do you think? Jack? You're right. It gets it gets reduced all the time. Um, Jackie, you you wrote a piece for the Good Weekend last year about the Prime Minister. You know, you you went to the Prime Minister's church and you wrote a piece about about his faith. Do you do you sort of agree with with this view that it that that it's separate? Do you think it's possible to separate? faith slash morality slash sort of moral compass from sort of, you know, what you bring to work, what you bring to... to. Um, no, I don't. I don't think it's possible to separate that at all because I think, I mean, this is where it gets really difficult because you're trying to peer into the soul of someone. Um, with Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison treated their, the intersection of their religion and their, and their policy making very differently. They had really different attitudes to it and Tony Abbott tripped up and people became very suspicious, suspicious of him over it over time, I think. I mean, the biggest conflict of interest that I always thought with Tony Abbott was when he was health minister and he was, um, you know, and they banned RU486 and that was something that <laughs> happened, you know, really um, uh, in conjunction with Brian Harradine in the upper house who was obviously a very strong sort of um, uh, conservative right Christian and you had a guy who, yeah, had his whole belief system, um, according to, you know, his interpretation of the Catholic faith was that women shouldn't have abortions. And then he's sitting there as health minister and he's, a ban he's banning an abortion drug, which doctors are saying is perfectly safe, which, um, you know, human rights campaigners are saying women need. And, um, in fact, the medical advice was to take it away from women, particularly in regional and remote areas, is actually going to be, a, you know, medical, a health issue. Um, so you're acting against the health interests of women. I feel, you know, particularly strongly about um, reproductive rights, as you can probably tell. But uh, yeah, it, it was kind of, you know, that was where Abbott didn't even try to sort of hide the fact that he was blending his religious views and really imposing them upon his portfolio and the people affected by that portfolio in the worst possible way. Like, you know, women in regional towns who couldn't get abortions when they needed them. Mm -mm. Um, I mean, we contrast that with, yeah. No, sorry, go ahead. If you're, I was gonna, I was gonna change well, the subject slightly. So, <laughs> well, just to contrast that with Scott Morrison, I, I he's a much more wily politician. Um, I think I get the impression his faith drives him. It is an incredibly fundamental part of the man and a very a foundation of his character. And he's said that in um, in interviews. Mm. Um, he's also said the Bible's not a policy handbook. Um, and I think his conception of faith and his religion is a lot around the community and the communion of the church and the coming together um, that is central to Pentecostalism. And I think it's probably the most beautiful, you know, part of Pentecostalism, that that communion um, and, you know, the like the joy of song and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that sort of doesn't have so much to do with what policy decisions you might make. However, I think you can, you know, we probably all thought, like particularly when he was immigration minister and he's making like discretionary decisions, which are very much in a moral sphere, like do I save this child, do I save this woman, do I save this man? How can you make those decisions if you're a fun, you know, your Christian faith is so, so strong to you? How can you make those without reference to that higher set of moral values that have been instilled in you and which you adhere to? I don't know how you make he would that say he did. I don't. He would say he did. Yeah. yeah, but I I guess I would just but question how much you could compartmentalise that. Um, but, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't judge him on that score, but it, it, it is an interesting contrast between the two men. It is. No, it is interesting. And, and, and look, I mean, sorry. Go on. No, no, no I was just going to say, would... like, <laughs> you go. No, no, you, 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 no. Julia, come on. This no, is going to keep on happening. I was going to make, like, one sentence, which was that... Um, I agree with Jackie. I think that he is sincere. He's insincere in his belief, and I think he's genuine in his belief. And I wrote this in a column once, and I, that he believes what he says. So therefore, he will pray. Like it's so people might not be comfortable with that, but that that is going to happen if you're a person of faith. And the headline was Morrison is a genuine Christian. And honestly, I get that on Twitter every single day people talking about that piece and raging about that piece who are not Christians, who are, but who are saying, 
how can you be genuine if you don't, you know, if you keep people in detention? How can you be genuine if you won't increase job seeker? And um, yeah, so I was just just going to make that point that um, it, 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 I think he, it, it's kind of a, a no-win situation sometimes for him, but I do think the, the beliefs are sincerely held and people are going to have very different views on, on, on what it means to act as a person of, like, faith and compassion who loves their neighbour. Like, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I think this this actually gets to the point that, uh, that that I was going to raise, which is that, you know, we've been focused because of the religions of our our recent prime ministers on Christianity. But of course, you know, Australia is less and less Christian. Um, you know, the census I'm sure will reveal further increase in the um, in the number of Australians who hold non-Christian religions. Um, and, and, you know, I think the role of sort of diversity and re religious diversity potentially plays a part in this. And I wonder, Oz, if you think that um, that sort of the expansion of other ideas of religion and morality that aren't specifically Christian, whether that will kind of help frame the broader political discourse in 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 sort of more interesting and perhaps useful ways, or is that it's or is funny, that a dream? It's funny that you mentioned the census. I. <laughs> <laughs> I had an idea to start a joke campaign to convince everyone I knew to put their religion down as Muslim this year, just to freak everyone out. Just imagine, you know, Pauline Hanson or Conservative Australia, 15% of Australians are Muslims. What have we done here? Um, How many I, people do you know, Oz? <laughs> yeah, true. And I should also clarify that in case it's probably illegal to like, you know, fix the census. So anyone from the government. So or illegal. Just jokes, so illegal. <laughs> terrible, just, just, just a gag, just a gag. No one did. I could, my housemates didn't even do it. They put down their actual um, <laughs> beliefs. Um, I, I think what you're, I think what's interesting, like, I, so a lot of people think, and I've had this conversation with, with friends of mine that are religious, that religion, they think that morals come from religion, right? They think that even if you delink religion from politics and society, you're still keeping the bits that you like, which is a set of moral values. I don't think that is necessarily the case. I think, you know, morals predate religion and there's lots of societies that aren't deeply religious or, or Abrahamic in terms of their religion that have that have moral positions. But either way, I don't think if you lose religion or you lose Christianity from Australian society or Australian politics, you get some sort of moral vacuum. But I think you get a, probably a different set of morals. And I think the challenge I think we have- Maybe a less racist set of morals? Yeah, totally. And I, and I think the challenge we have in Australia, and it speaks to this issue of morals that you're asking about, but also on a whole bunch of issues, which is that our political class are so disconnected in just a representational sense from what this country looks like, that you don't even need to wait for the next census results to, to demonstrate that Christianity is smaller uh, as a proportion of the population than it is now. The, the kinds of people in parliament in terms of their age, their race, their gender, their religious background, all of those things shape their moral positions, are vastly out of step with where this country is at. And so when it comes to questions of trust, when it comes to questions of a shared vision, I think that that disconnect is partly why there is so much cynicism uh, and, and angst about this own political system right now. I think it's just going to get worse. I don't see it changing. I mean, when I say I see it getting worse, as if things continue on their current trajectory, I see it getting worse. I don't, I'm not some sort of doom, uh, uh, you know, some super, I'm a very cynical person, but I don't think it's inevitable that things get worse. But I do think that mainstream politics needs a significant reset to, to have people there I think about people, younger generation of people, people that uh, I, you know, in my sort of social groups and in my family social groups who maybe aren't religious, but still are driven by a moral sense of purpose and what they think about is right and wrong. The more of those people we have who look like the country that can make arguments in the same kinds of terms as normal Australians do, that may go some way in building what is a genuine shared vision of mm. Australia. And if you have a mm. genuine shared vision, then when you make moral appeals, you actually bring people along because they get what you're talking about. Mm. Mm. I think that's I think that's absolutely true, and and I think it's really interesting to think about you know in the context of the fact that you know we're we're going to have a federal election within the next several months in this country, and you know we know that it's going to be 
framed in the sort of terms that we've been talking about and that both sides are going to be reaching for arguments that try and present their sort of side as being the good or the decent or the most Australian or however it gets framed. So I think it's possibly an interesting question to sort of finish up on, um, which is, you know, is, is a good, decent, ethical, moral government possible in a democratic framework? Is that, can it, can it exist? And if so, what does it look like and how do we get there? Jackie? Oh man, <laughs> that's an easy one, Jack. Go for it. Sort it out, mate. Thanks. Well, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. She's you know speaking I, on behalf of I us mean, all. Yes. When when it comes to that question, I just think um, you know our politics is only as moral as the people within it. So it really depends on the quality of politicians um, and the characters uh, that of the people, but also the systems that we have in place to encourage, I suppose, um, moral behaviour and to wipe out moral hazards, something like an ICAC would probably be, you know, useful in that regard. Um, what Oz is saying about true diversity and true a true reflection of what Australia really looks like as opposed to an outdated or, you know, fictional vision of what Australia looks like, I think all of those would probably guide us towards a more moral politics. And I like to think that it, you know, change is so excruciatingly slow um, in terms of representation in Parliament. But I do like to think that once you, you definitely need systems in place. I mean, you know, uh, you need you need systems in place which discourage and punish uh, corruption and other forms of immoral behaviour um, to serve as a corrective. And then beyond that, I suppose you need true, yeah, true representation. I think it's Julia? also about, I think it's about consequences as well, right? Um, mm. And, and that, that goes back to the, the question of sexual assault. If there's no consequences, it's a culture of impunity. Mm. And what, what we've seen in terms of the erosion of ministerial responsibility, the number of ministers who've done things for which they should have stepped down all left Parliament compared to one or two decades ago, it is actually stunning. Ros Kelly, who went just for a whiteboard, um, mm. you know, and 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 that has shifted, and that is a problem, and that is Trumpian as well. Just mm. saying, there's a oh, shamelessness there. Wait yeah. till it goes away, and and that to me is probably the most significant. Um, like problem, I think, in terms of it, it wanting, if you're talking about any kind of arc to, to morality, um, because the more that happens, the more our rage go, grows because we do have this dissonance of knowing that occurs and not wanting it to occur. And in that, in what does that give us? That gives us impotence. And impotence goes in all kinds of crazy directions um, online and politically and ideologically, which has been mapped out by, by a, a whole bunch of political and social scientists. And incidentally, so does loneliness um, and feeling isolated. There's some really interesting work that's being done around that, which worries me about the pandemic as well. So yeah, I think that whoever was saying it was, it was Oz, I think, like needing a, a story of who we are and the better parts of who we are and the, like, I think we would, we just crave leadership like that. We really do. People that, that, that can convince us. We see goodness and decency all around us. Like, you know, like in human beings, yeah. it's just, although let's admit everything's yeah. afraid right now, we <laughs> don't see it enough in the public and the political stage. We just don't see it. And I, I think that's really, um, really like it's just I mean it's very disappointing it's it's enraging and I think in again in a climate of impunity it's extremely problematic. So Oz you've declared yourself a, a cynic um are you hopeful that there can be that there, there can be change and that maybe there can be a bit more accountability and a bit less sort of you know shameless behavior mm. what do you think? I look I actually think there's a there's something that we all need to think about and that's our own, the way that we that we ourselves as people reward or punish politicians. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think 99% of what we're talking about is 100%. That's a confusing way of putting things. 99% uh, of what we're talking about is is entirely on politicians and and the political class. But the pandemic has has made me think a lot about 
what we as people, the signals we send our politicians in Australia right now, the most popular politicians across the board are the ones who are doing their best to keep Australians out of this country, to separate mm. families, to stop mothers seeing their three-year-old children. There is something mm. in, I think, Australians that is uh, a desire to punish or to lock people out in order to keep themselves feeling safe. We've seen that mm. since 1788 through to refugee policy through to the pandemic. And I don't think all of that goes away if Australians start to ask for more compassion on these areas. But I think we have some, to be a little bit optimistic, we have some capacity ourselves to send signals to politicians in terms of the kinds of moral beliefs we want them to hold and enact. Mm. Mm. It seems like what we have is a is a big sort of distance between the Australia, you know, the idea of a society that we all want to be and the idea of a society that we're prepared to hold our leader, leaders accountable for. And I think that maybe that's that that's where the gap needs to be closed a lot more to try and be more decent. We're out of time. It's been so good having this conversation. I wish it were. Um, I wish it were in real life. I wish we could go out and, you know, <laughs> hit the bars this evening or, or do something together. But um, but we'll have to put a bookmark there and, and wait until next time. Thank you so much, Jacqueline Maley, Julia Baird, and Osman Faruqi. It has been a great pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House.